We're going to dig into the scripture today. So if you have a Bible, you want to grab the Bible in the pew back in front of you, you can do that. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, and one of the things as sort of a Protestant evangelical church, we always value like scripture and reading it either on its own, like in worship, as we were gathering and singing and, and speaking together, and then also the teaching time. And we either do like a verse-by-verse series or a topical series. And so we've been finishing up a verse-by-verse series through 1 Peter. And this is the last chapter in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, if you're new and you're looking at the Bible, there's usually an index in the front. But 1 Peter is going to be towards the very end of the scriptures before you get to the big book of Revelation. First, uh, second, third John and Jude. 1 Peter is right there. So you kind of take like the last eighth and then start flipping around and you should find it. Uh, or use your phone. And you can read as well. But we're going to read this morning. I'm reading from the New English Translation. And so follow along uh, or just listen if you wish as we look at this chapter. Uh, there's just a few more verses than I normally would do in a series, but we want to land this as we get into the fourth Advent and Christmas stuff in the next two weeks. So Peter's writing to the churches in Asia, uh, sort of the western end of Asia, and he says this, So as your fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, And as one who shares in the glory that will be revealed, I urge the elders among you, give a shepherd's care to the God's flock among you, exercising oversight, not merely as a duty, but willingly under God's direction, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. And do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Then when a chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades. In the next section, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to a humble. And then six is another shift here. He says, and God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourself under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion and he's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Resist him, strong in your faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him belongs the power forever. Amen. And then he gives this little tail note because these were letters that were sent or a letter that was sent. And he says, through Silvanus, who I have, uh, whom I know as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. The church in Babylon chosen together with you greets you. And so does Mark, my son, greet one another with a loving kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, what you're doing here at Pilgrim. And even this year, as I've been sort of thinking slowly and starting to reflect on this calendar year and the new church year we're in, I've just been amazed, Lord, at what you're doing in this house, these people, and how you're knitting together this spiritual family. For those of us that have been here for many years and those of us that are brand new or newish, you're doing something at a deep level that models the kind of humanity you desire for all people everywhere. And the local church is an expression of that kingdom, that different kingdom. So Lord, continue to tear down walls in our hearts and our minds towards one another, towards you. Soften our hearts through your word, through worship, through the community, through service, through loving our neighbors. 
Empower us today as you promised to do by your Holy Spirit when we gather in the name of Jesus. I'm a saint and sinner in process. Lord, I can't change anybody. At best, on my good days, I can put some good arguments together. But Lord, only you can touch the deepest part of each person, each man, each woman, each child here today. So come, Holy Spirit. Breathe your breath into us. Lord and giver of life, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning if you're uh, wanting to do so. This is quite a text. Peter has written to these churches in Asia that are experiencing, as we have talked about, uh, persecution, or they will be experiencing persecution, We learn, as we learn later, looking back in history. They're... Uh, he uses the language early on that you are to see yourselves once you become a Christian as a sojourner and alien amongst the culture of birth or the nation that you're in, that you sort of choose an immigration status by following Christ, a spiritual immigration status of sojourner and resident alien, or to use Canadian language, sort of would be a visitor with a record or a a permanent resident, uh, either one, short-term or long-term, but that this kingdom of the earth is not our primary home when we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's our secondary citizenship. Of course, we bless it. We want to do the best for it. But our first loyalty becomes Jesus. And he uses that language early on. And now in the last chapter, there's an intensification of the emotion that he's doing. He's intentionally sort of ratcheting up the rhetoric just a little bit as he's bringing this forward. And he he wants to encourage them to be faithful to Christ And that word that pops out throughout this chapter for me is really this idea of standing firm in spite of all of the attacks and all the things coming against you. Stand firm. Say it with me. Stand firm. firm. Say it with me. Stand firm. firm. All right. All right. Stand firm in the faith. I was reminded of a story. uh, I I should not say a story, but a writing of a guy named David Brooks uh, in a talk that he gave in the gathering in 2014. He's a New York Times columnist, and he noted that profound suffering can often lead to a sense of calling and purpose. And Peter, of course, is writing about this idea of suffering and and how God can use suffering, even though he's not necessarily the source of it. And David wrote this. He said, people who have suffered almost always have this sense of calling. When people lose a child, they don't say, well, I had two years where I had low pleasure, I should compensate by going to a lot of parties so I can get high pleasure and balance off my hedonic account, my hedonism account. They don't do that, he says. They do not say that. They want to turn the suffering, and he uses the word into holiness, so that they can create a foundation. He says, or people often transform their lives. People don't heal from suffering. Hear this, friends. They come out changed. And Peter is of course, writing this, and I think David Brooks and Peter are sort of on the same wavelength here in terms of how suffering can empower us and transform us, or again, we can go back into that and get lost in it as well. So this morning, we want to explore a little bit of what's going on here. There's a few big ideas uh, that I just want to name right up front, and then we're going to weave them through, and then we'll land the plane and let you out. By the way, I use the, the idea of landing the plane as a metaphor for softly coming out of a message or a teaching versus just like, ah, crash into the side of the mountain, right? So land the plane softly and let you out. So there's some big ideas to keep in mind as we look through these verses again. 
uh, is the idea of servant leadership or eldership. And you, by the way, you could write these down in the insert that was in your newsletter this morning if you want to stay track with me better. It's always great to take notes. Your brain, your mind, your body, kinesthetic experience makes teaching better. Uh, so servant leadership and eldership comes, comes up in here. Another big idea related to that, and for all of us, again, is this idea of pride and humility. Pride and humility. Humility was not a virtue in the Greco-Roman culture. Humility was baseness, lowliness, shameful. But Jesus comes in and says, no, no, there is a kingdom humility that we embrace as followers of Christ. And there's actually upside-down power in it. Another big idea that comes up in this text, so we talked about servant leadership or eldership, pride and humility. Um, spiritual warfare comes up in this as well. And this is important, and we'll unpack it just a slight bit more, but this idea of there is a war going on in the unseen world that has an impact in the physical realm, which is a a scandalous claim of Christianity, but we want to dig into that. And then finally, he sort of wraps up everything in summary and sends them out with a blessing and a praise. All right, let's dig in this morning. Are you ready? Okay, I need more participation. Are you ready? Oh my goodness. All right. Wow, wow. Listen to that. All right. I liked how the reading in the Advent reading this morning uh, was in Ezra, and it talked about when the temple was rebuilt in ancient Jerusalem. First temple was torn out, and it said, the young people were shouting with joy, and the old people were weeping. <laughs> and in fact, if you read more of that text, I'm sure some of them were weeping because they were, they were also joyful weeping, but some of them were weeping because they remembered the glory of the former temple. And they were sad that the next generation didn't do it like they did it. And instead of rejoicing in the fact that they were worshiping and seeking the Lord, they were upset about the quality of the temple. Oh, I could have preached that sermon today, but I don't want to have to leave next week. So, but uh, (laughs) some good stuff going on there. Jesus help me. All right. So as we look at the outline this morning, there's different ways to break this out. Uh, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then 5. Uh, And we'll do that first. Let's look at those verses again this morning. So he's writing them. He says, as your fellow elder, and he brings up a word here, uh, this uh, uh, presbyteroi would be the plural for elders in Greek. Uh, These idea of leadership in the church is named here. And so he's identifying himself now as a fellow elder. Now, we don't know if Peter was actually an elder in a local church back wherever he was writing from at this point and eventually from Rome. Um, But if he's writing from Rome or if he's using that saying, I was an elder, he, but earlier on, he says, I'm also an apostle. So he has two sort of positions of authority that we learn about his apostleship. And so he's writing to them as an apostle, but now he's trying to bring it down and say, I'm also an elder. I'm in the trenches. I, I've led a home church. I've led a congregation in addition to being an apostle who was there with Jesus and has oversight over many, 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 many churches as well. And so we see this idea of developing leadership within the church, within the text of scripture, and there are certain patterns that begin to emerge. And so he says, as a fellow elder, and then he adds the apostolic thing, as a witness of Christ's sufferings, as one who shares in the glory that's coming, I urge uh, those that are leading among you. And then he, he shifts his, his urging here and gives them some, some instructions. Peter personally understands their role. And so he's writing them from, from being in the trenches. Isn't it, you know, sometimes you get people that have lots of advice for you, but no experience. Isn't that kind of hard to hear from them? You know, people that want to tell you about your job but have never done a thing. If you're a bricklayer and they want to tell you how to lay bricks and they've never... It'd be like me as a pastor who's trained in scripture and study and people skills telling a bricklayer this is how you leap. So Peter's saying, as fellow elders, I've done it. I've been in the trenches. Uh, I'm emotionally intelligent. I've been there. He's, he's kind of given them a little bit of credential from the trenches that he knows what's going on. Have any of you ever gotten advice on a job that you're highly skilled at from someone who is not? 
Raise your hand. Have you ever, anybody, have you ever had someone like tell you? Okay, well, you all must have way better friends and polite people than I've been around in my life because people always telling me, well, anyway, okay. So <clears throat> another sermon for another day. I keep saying that. My children and the worship team were, were actually echoing in loving harassment this morning that it's another sermon for another day, isn't it, Pastor Shell? Yes, yes. Uh, so he gives this description of himself. In fact, in all of 1 Peter, this is the only place where we get this much self-description from Peter. This is it right here, where he gives the most self-description about who he is and what's going on. Obviously, they would have known him from the context that we don't have in the actual letter. And so he goes into verse 2, Give the shepherd's care to God's flock among you, exercising oversight, not merely as a duty, but willingly under God's direction, and not for shameful profit, but eagerly. So verses 2 and 3, don't lower it over, but be examples. So eldership is linked, leadership in the church, as he's wrapping up this letter, is linked to overseeing willingly according to God. And he says, not overseeing for greedy gain or for recognition. And I like how one biblical scholar puts this, that shameful gain is not against paying clergy well, by the way, because Jesus makes that point and Paul does, you should pay them, that a workman is worthy of their hire. But something is wrong if the church is used as a for-profit business for the elders in the church. If you do a Google search of churches and financial abuse, this would be the kind of thing that Peter would be rebuking strongly, that if the church is used to leverage for uh, for-profit business, I think of a faith preacher some years ago that was saying that the church needed, he was trying to raise money from multiple churches to buy a jet so he didn't have to fly uh, in commercial in order to do his apostolic ministry wherever. I think Peter would call that a shameful abuse of position. I need this jet, and there was a clip on TV, and I might have even played it in this church or in another church, I can't remember, Uh, but there's this thing where he's saying, well, I can't fly commercial because of all the demons on board, so you need to give today, we need to seed into my fund for this, I forget how many millions of dollars it was for this private jet. Let me just say that the majority of us in ministry do not have this problem. (laughs) We're on the other side of the scale, but Peter's saying this sort of shameful use, and you see some of it in church culture. There is a line, there is a a uh, line that can be crossed. And so he's saying, don't be that way. And then third instruction within verses two through three. So first of all, this overseeing willingly, uh, not under compulsion, means that regardless of how you appoint leaders or elders in the church, the service is to be joyful, not grudgingly. Not negative leadership. Grudging leadership is not pleasing to God. Don't vote people into leadership or however we place people into leadership It's grudgingly and negatively. It's like, don't put people that are under compulsion and constantly this attitude, this negative, don't, they should not be elders. They are not qualified. So this I see of a willingness and a joyfulness. This compulsion word is the same word Paul uses for giving in the church offering by this way. He says that we should be cheerful givers, cheerful givers, not under compulsion, but as the Holy Spirit is moves and gifts on our hearts. And there's a consistency with that kind of cheerfulness. God doesn't want begrudgingly uh, stewardship, whether it's of our spiritual gifts, our leadership, our resources, but something that's joyful and motivated by the Spirit. Churches get into all kinds of trouble when they don't use this as a criterion of eldership. Again, another sermon for another day, and all God's people said amen. All right. And then third and finally, in verses 2 through 3, And I know I'm preaching to myself this morning because I love this text. Uh, He says, do not lord it over those entrusted you, but be examples to the flock. Do not lord it over. 
Don't be a domineering person, but be a model. He's not saying don't be assertive. He's not saying be, I come from Mennonite stock, and we talked about the quiet and the land and sort of passive. He's not saying be overly passive. He's saying there's a, there's a proper assertiveness between aggression and passivity that good leadership needs to pursue. So don't lord it over. He's also probably calling to mind Jesus' teaching when Jesus said in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and Luke 22 that in the Roman Greco culture uh, and even many of the leaders in the Jewish leadership of the time, there was this sense of I have the position, I have the authority. And whether I'm an elder, a board member, a pastor, a teacher, apostle, whatever, this, this lording over someone said, don't do that. The secular culture does that. The secular culture is all about position and title and, and, and uh, you know, this kind of thing. He said, that's not how we approach leadership. It's to be a servant model of leadership. We come alongside, we walk together in discipleship. We model and we learn from one another. And so I think that's important to understand. When I got saved in the church, uh, our churches that I was, became a Christian in, the title pastor was a really big deal. And I think for a lot of evangelicals it was, particularly in the older generations or generations that have already passed. But in our church it was a big deal. Like a pastor would correct somebody if they called him by first name. If I said, if Oliver was my pastor, with more years on you, you know, clearly. Uh, and I said, Oliver, in, in, that, in my tradition, he, he, would, he would often correct and say, please call me pastor or pastor Oliver. Uh, I know I'm going to get flack for that later, uh, but that's okay. I pay for your food. Um, so, <laughs> but I love you too. <laughs> See, I just lorded it over as a parent. See, don't do that, right? Bottle my example. So this idea of like the title was so big, and here Peter's saying, don't lord these things over. In fact, if that's someone's heart motivation in becoming a ministry is for power or simply for gain, these are huge red flags in leadership. Does that make sense? Yes? I mean, I think this is pretty like common sense stuff, but apparently we need to review it because here it's in scripture and here he was writing to these churches uh, in Western Asia about this. And then he goes on, he says, but when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus comes his second advent, we're in between the times, you will have received the crown of glory that never fades if you, if you lead in these ways well. And in some ways, all of us are leaders in the church. If you're a believer and you're growing, I, I joked about this in church planting, like if you've been a Christian for three to six months, man, you're ready for leadership, some level of leadership, probably not leading the whole thing, but you know, you're ready. In some sense, all of us need to take these things to heart. And he summarizes this, these first verses by saying, the chief shepherd, meaning Jesus, when he appears, will give you a crown that never fades. Athletic contests in the Greco-Roman world, if you won, you would often get a, a laurel or a wreath made of, of uh, green leaves, right? This, this organic wreath, they've been cut off and they're green, and you would be crowned with that crown. And that crown would fade because, of course, it's like our Christmas greens out on the door out front. They will fade over time because they're no longer connected to the tree. But there were some crowns that were given of a certain flower where the red stayed, and even when it dried out, it was this red that didn't fade. And then there were also crowns that were given to leadership or local benefactors that were woven of precious metal, which had never faded, this undimmed glory. And he's saying that's the kind of crown that Christ gives us at the judgment when we have followed him and how we lead and how we live. I should finally say one more thing before we get to the middle and last half here. Um, the image of shepherd. Like, we live in an urban environment, and so we understand the idea there are sheep. But there's been books and books and books written on this in the ancient world, the, the role of shepherd that would have been a very well-known role 
because obviously it was a more agrarian society. And so this idea of how a shepherd leads sheep and that we learn from Christ as the chief shepherd and pastors and elders and those leader are under shepherds under Christ. I, Paul says this, and I like to paraphrase it. You follow me in as much as I am faithfully following Christ, but I'm human, I'm man, I make mistakes, I sin. Uh, and so the chief shepherd is ultimately who we have our eyes on, Jesus' life and teachings, death and resurrection. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. He also says in Galatians, but if I come preaching any other gospel than the one that has already been preached, uh, let that person be accursed, even if they said that an angel gave them the word. So this follow as they're following Christ. All right, let's move on. Let's get to the rest here of this following. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I got to spend just a second on this, because it's important. First of all, Paul, Peter is using the language, and the New Testament uses elder in two different ways. There's elder literally in the sense of age, old people, older folks, uh, but then elder is also used in terms of spiritual leadership, older in the faith. And again, if it's a new church, older in the faith, maybe a year down the road versus the person who's just coming in. So elders used in two ways here. Now, oftentimes age and depth in life in the faith do go together, but not always. Sometimes there are people who have aged but have resisted growth in the Lord, who have resisted experiencing Christ. I've experienced this in the years I've been in church ministry. I think it's my 21, 22nd year in ministry I'm about to enter. And I've experienced old people who are on fire and passionate for the Lord and care that the next generations are reached and understand that the last third of life is about empowering the next generation and the middle third is about uh, being productive and also empowering. But we're always looking to the generation that's coming to empower that, both literally in age and also in non-believers in our circles of influence. I have met people in that last third that don't want to let go, that want to cling to power, that want to try to hang on. And because, you know why? Because their elders never got it right. And so they feel like now it's it's my time to, to cash in those cards. And they destroy good things that God wants to do. And they kill the young holding on to the things of the past. So be careful when you hear this elder language that you think just because it's age, it means it doesn't necessarily track. Now, I've also been around older folks that want to see the next generation reach. They understand that they're in the last third. And in the last third, it's about pouring into the knowledge and wisdom you have and also being flexible on the secondary and third level things that don't matter really in light of eternity. But it's awful when churches, that's why so many churches in North America are dying and plateaued because it's people hanging on to what we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where now I'm in that place because their elders never modeled for them healthy, biblical, joyful, servant-hearted leadership. And so you may be here in that last third and you need to relearn what it means to be an elder literally or spiritually in the church because you didn't have good examples. But thank God for his word. Because we have the scriptures and we have what has happened before and we have the history of the church. We can learn so much. We don't have to learn by making the same mistake. We can learn by watching uh, the warnings uh, uh, and the positive examples of those that have gone before. So he says to those of you that are younger, whether in the faith or in your spiritual journey or literally age, uh, be subject to the elders. There is something about listening to those that are in those leadership positions within the local church. Not blindly, because he immediately says this, and all of you, say it with me, all of you, and all of you, verse five, oh, that was, that was weak, and all of you, one more time, all and all of you, all of you. he says, so close yourself with humility towards one another. Well, I'm an elder, I have arrived. Bow before me. Oh, no, no, clothe yourself with humility. 
This clothing language is New Testament language, that we take something off. Arrogance, pride, control, manipulation, sinfulness, things that beset us, we are to take them off and in the being washed of repentance and their nakedness before God, then we clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. And here, one of those things, he says, clothe yourself with humility because God will oppose you. Quoting from the Old Testament again, God will oppose you if you don't and give grace to the humble. And then he shifts, and now we're getting to the last half here, and everybody said amen. All right. I love this passage. It's good stuff. He says, if you do this, God will exalt you in due time. If you humble yourselves under his mighty hand, God will exalt you in due time. Do we trust that God is at work in our relationships in the local church? Do we trust that he is able to do exceedingly above and beyond what we can have? Can we release enough control to submit to one another and let God work and let him do what he's going to do and let him move through the local church. Peter's bringing all of these things together in this last chapter. This is one of those themes about humility and servant leadership. Trust that God will work in leadership. From Jesus told a parable. He said, when you go to a banquet, don't look for the best seats in the house. I could preach this morning about in a church, these are the worst seats in the house. Those of you that are sitting in the back, this is... Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so don't look for the best. Don't, don't let the master of the house have to bump you out of the best seats next to him on the table because you're, you thought of yourself too highly. But rather, choose the lowest seats in the house in the church. Those are the front pews. Uh, no, but uh, choose the lowest seats in the house and then let the master say, no, no, my friend, come move up closer, move up higher in the order. So Christians in leadership, we are to take that one down position because God works his supernatural work in that place. He chooses that. I believe that God has a great future for this church. I believe that we have been through a time of testing and purification, and, and we're probably still in it a bit. And some of us as individuals may be in it still, working through our stuff. But because we're in a place of humility and smallness, I think that's where God does some of his most amazing work in the ones and the twos. You know, my life was changed more in my local messy church, the little church, before I ended up going to the large church. Because you experience all the stuff and you're not isolated from it. And you learn how to be in relationship. And then in your home church, as the church grows, being in those smaller groups, God does so much good discipleship there. Okay, I got to keep going, I know. All right. So here we look at, we're, we're pivoting through, and he says, verse 7. He says this, Oh, I love this. When I, when I was a believer, there were these little scripture songs that helped me memorize so much scripture easily. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens, talking to God, down at your feet. And anytime I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. These people were experiencing persecution from their families, their culture. Some of them were losing wealth and jobs. Stuff that we and freer nations probably can't even imagine. Quite frankly, some of you, if you experienced what they were experiencing, you'd no longer follow Jesus. I would hope all of you would, but the time tells. And he says this, cast your cares on God because he cares for you. I believe that there's a spiritual discipline of relinquishment. I release control. Saying this to my home church, I don't know, a couple weeks ago in one of our prayer groups, that 
I was wrestling with a situation with someone and I literally visualized in my mind that I was carrying them. It was kind of weird if you thought about this in real life, but this was the visualization that I was carrying this person and there was an image of Jesus who to me was just this bright, pure, uncreated light and I laid this person down at Jesus' feet and I did it over and over and over again. That's a form of prayer, by the way. I have my cares and concerns. What are those things that you're carrying this morning that are crushing you? that you weren't made to carry by yourself. Jesus says, and Peter says, cast all your cares upon him. Jesus says, take my yoke on you. Let me take your yoke, but now you take my yoke. For my yoke, my burden, my way of connecting to the burden as beasts used to do is light, and I will shoulder it with you. Will you cast your cares on him this morning? Before you leave this morning, someone in this house has something that you're carrying that is so heavy and crushing, and the Lord says to you this morning, I want you to visualize that thing. Maybe take it in your arms and lay it at the feet of Jesus and keep doing it again and again and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Jesus Christ this is a spiritual discipline friends don't miss this there's power that he has given you in your holy imagination to engage with the very real work of the spirit world that makes a difference in this life right now cast your cares on him for he cares for you and then he gets to this last part and then the, the closing. Oh, I needed to hear that. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that you care for us. He says, by the way, be, be sober, be alert. This alert language again. He's not talking, I mean, we can go down the rabbit hole of saying he's not saying that drinking is bad, but he's saying there's a state of mind that's cloudiness, a drunkenness of spirit and of mind that we can be in that keeps us from alertness. So he says, be sober and alert. Because by the way, there's an enemy. There's an enemy this morning, men and women, boys and girls and youth, that desires to deceive you and keep you trapped in the kingdom of the world way of thinking and acting. And he says, his enemy is the devil, a spiritual force of evil who is like a roaring lion and he's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. That there is an enemy for your soul. There is some, a, a warfare to keep you from the truth of Jesus Christ. There is an actual spiritual battle over you right now in this place in your life until Jesus comes and the whole thing is brought to completion and the new thing comes. There's warfare over you. There's warfare over you. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? There's an enemy that wants to keep you from being rooted and grounded in the identity of Jesus as your center. God who has revealed his love. God who comes down from the mountain. All of the religions go up to the mountain. But we say God has come down from the mountain, has cast off religiosity, and has become one of us that we might become like him and restored in the image and likeness that he desires. A new humanity not driven by ideology, not driven by all these identities. There is one core identity of being loved in Jesus. This is an enemy that wants to keep you from that. And so he ratchets up their language. And then he says this in verse 9, resist. Say it with me, resist. Some of you are in the wrong resistance. Your first resistance needs to be against the enemy of your souls. And all the other stuff falls into proper place. Resist him. These powers are working to dehumanize you, to get you driven by ideology, to get us driven by all of the things that divide us as humans. That is the work ultimately of the evil one, of the devil himself. Dear people in Asia, he's writing to his churches, the house churches there, he's saying your ultimate enemy actually isn't Caesar. Caesar doesn't understand that he's a tool of a much darker, sinister power that is always railing against God and against his Christ. 
Your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is not the other political party. Your enemy is not ultimately those ideologies or manifestations of one sinister thing that desires to destroy God's creation. And he says, resist him in your faith in Jesus. And you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the whole world are doing the same thing. They're dealing with suffering as well. And after you have suffered a little while, verse 10, the God of all grace, who has called you, who you've responded to the other song, the the mystery of the kingdom of God, you've responded to the gospel of Jesus when it didn't make any sense from what you knew uh, from your life before, but there was hope, there was joy, there was a sound, there was a yearning within you that nothing else was completing, but you began to walk in that and you began to experience the light of Christ in your heart. He said, as you've responded to that, oh, when all of this is done, there will be a fullness of glory in Christ that he himself, he himself will do these four things. He will restore what the enemy has stolen. He will confirm the truth of who God is in all of creation. He will strengthen you. He will establish you that this God is at work. And when we go into the scandalous message of Jesus, and when we pray in the name of Jesus, and when we enter into the scandal of the particularity that one man, one God makes claim on all people backwards and forwards in time into this small little people of Jews and expands to all of the world, when we enter into that mystery, there is life, there is freedom that makes the rest of us come alive and flourish. This is the scandal of Christianity. The king of the universe has come, has reigned, and will come and fully bring his reign one day. And if you live with that at your center versus all the other competing things for your identity, it will change how you do human life. You enter into a new humanity. And as Paul says that we so often quote in Galatians 3, neither Jew nor Greek, meaning all of us, Neither slave nor free, meaning social economic barriers. Neither male nor female, meaning gender and identity and all of that stuff of othering is tore down in Christ, rooted in his love. Well, I better land this plane. All right. To him, oh, by the way, he throws out this doxology, the last part before he gives like the closing of the letter, throws out this doxology. To him be all the glory. In the New Testament, often these letters are ended with these, these, these praises or these doxology. Doxa is just the word for like glory, right? And so giving glory, giving praise to the creator versus giving praise to my politics, my ideologies, my other identity. We give praise to Jesus and in that it changes us. And so he ends with this just shout of praise. And then he gives us some details. I say, why are we spending time on the last little closing? Well... I think it's important because it reminds us that this is real, historical, rooted in places. These are people that they were really encountering. These were real churches. Jesus wasn't just cooked up in the back room somewhere 500 years ago. There's historicity to the faith. And these ancient letters are things that we can look at, and some of it, these that receive these letters could have cross-checked this. Silvanus is being the one who is helping write the letter and also delivering the letter from Peter in Rome. And he names Mark as well. He drops names. If you're making stuff up, you don't drop names of people that you can go and check with. That's what he's, there's this sort of this authenticity of this letter. And so he says again, through this brother, I've written to you in order to encourage you that this is the true grace. This is what you need to stand in. This is your identity, 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 who Jesus is and who he was and that he's coming again. And he says also the church in Babylon, verse 13, that's a whole other sermon too. Say it with me, that's another sermon. The church in Babylon, Babylon was language used for Rome without saying Rome. 
I imagine our brothers and sisters in mainland who are experiencing the crackdown of the Communist Party are finding all sorts of creative ways and trying to stay ahead and, uh, and try to figure out how do they do it now that the technological dystopian empire is closing in on them. But they're gonna, this was the ancient world of trying to figure that out. Babylon! <laughs> now, of course, it wouldn't take much of a rocket scientist. That's anachronistic, you know, rocket scientist in the first century. But whatever, uh, to say, you know, the church in Babylon, the church in Rome, who's dealing with the Roman Empire, also greets you. And so does Mark, who was his spiritual son. And then he ends with this. Jokingly, I was going to say, and this is the main point of the text now. Greet each other with a holy or a loving kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The kiss in some cultures more common. We may do like side hugs, evangelical side hugs. Some of you kiss cheeks. I know, whatever. We're all from wherever. But greeting other with a holy kiss. Part of this was to say, we're family. We're in this together. Now, if any of you are dealing with creepy things that you need deliverance of, don't you dare reach out to kiss anybody. And if someone gives you the left hand of fellowship after that, it's between you and them and the cops, okay? Uh, but the idea is that there's this warm greeting, this familial greeting. What does that mean in our culture and our time? It might be a hearty handshake or whatever. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And he closes the letter. Stand with me. I want to summarize, and the worship team can come up. Would you stand with me if you're able to do so? Turn to your neighbor and give them a holy... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Culturally appropriate ways to express that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So how can we wrap this up in a neat bow and then we get into our Christmassy Advent 4 stuff next Sunday and Christmas Eve? The first thing I say is that it applies to us. We have to do some cultural like wrestling, right? From first century Greco-Roman culture to where we're at now. But it does apply to us. In post-Christian or even no-Christian or anti-Christian places, First Peter is a book written encouragement. On one side of my family, I come from a Mennonite family that was literally bloodily killed and persecuted and fled multiple countries and ended up three continents and are now in North America, some of them. And I was reading some of those early Anabaptist martyrs and people that were about to be killed and they would write letters. They let them send out letters. You know, some regimes let that happen. And they would often quote from First Peter, this suffering is producing in us something beyond that ultimately, my life is not the last story. There's more beyond. I, I'm living for Christ in spite of what the state is doing to me. And they found hope in that. There are brothers and sisters right now that are suffering around the world that maybe have parts of this memorized, maybe are reading this, maybe are being encouraged by these words. Peter's words are timeless in that sense, and it can apply to us, even in our less extreme persecutions here in Canada. And don't be, have a false persecution complex. That's another issue. I think the other takeout this morning is how do we lead one another? The servant leadership, this eldership. Like I think there's things that there we need to wrestle with in terms of what does it mean to be a good leader as God designs? There's a servant leadership that's modeled here. I think the other uh, two things I want you to remember today, it applies to us, servant leadership. I think the other two things are this spiritual practice of casting our cares on the Lord. And maybe before you go today, that's something that all of us, all of us have worries and anxieties. And Jesus said that sometimes those worries in the world become so extreme that they can kill your faith if you don't learn to cast them on the Lord. That it can choke out the seeds of the gospel in your life. 
You're not alone, brothers and sisters. Don't let us walk alone. We need to encourage one another when we're walking through tough times. We need to be a place of love and care, a place where we can share those burdens and cast them on the Lord together if we need to. Sometimes I need someone else to hold my hand, spiritually speaking, uh, maybe literally, but stay away from the holy kiss part, and, and say, Shell, you can cast that on the Lord. Put that on him. Can I pray with you? Can I encourage you? We need to be that kind of people. And finally, remember, there is an enemy that does not want you to respond to any of this. And that enemy manifests often through political powers and ideologies. That enemy often manifests through people that are not, do not understand who Christ is and have not figured out that he's Lord of all. And they're seeking control and domination and judgment and identity that way. There's an enemy that's going after you. A, a, a roaring lion, the devil uses these things. Seeking whom he may devour. But it says, if you stand firm in Christ, the enemy cannot touch the most important part of you that goes on and on and on. Or as Paul says in the end of Romans 8, well, you know what? I'm not worried about whether height nor depth, nor powers or principalities, nor sickness, disease, all these things. He names this whole list of all the things that we tend to think are end of life, end of the story, story's over. And he says, even death itself I don't fear. Because when I'm in God's love in Jesus Christ, the core of my identity, even death can't rob me of that, and I will live again in him. That allows you to live life now differently, with your hands more open instead of so clenched, more freely. Let's pray. I'll let you out of here. Lord, thank you for um, my friends here today. And the Holy Spirit, you're doing something deeper than what I've prepared or any of the worship team, or the elders. And that today, maybe for someone or all of us, there's a little bit of an awakening happening. There's a little bit of awareness that there is more. They're beginning to hear that song that they've tuned out with all the other music of the world, but it's still breaking through in their heart. And something within them is leaping with inside, or starting maybe just to jump, or maybe just even lift their head up just a little bit because you're calling them to salvation and grace and that you've redeemed us and we have the opportunity to say yes and receive that gift and walk forward in following you. So Holy Spirit, build this people around Jesus, not around pilgrim, not around any of the other stuff, but around you and you only. And that we're empowered to live differently in our career paths, in our friends, our family, schooling, whatever stage of life we're in with whoever you put around us. May we go deeper in our home churches this week. May we go deeper in our neighborhoods and in our individual life as well. We thank you that you care for us. In Jesus' name, and if you're willing to say amen, amen. amen.